Stories from California Cattle Country is produced by the California Cattlemen's Foundation and receives support from the California Cattle Council. We've created this podcast for those wanting to connect with the people and practices of far-flung ranches and dairies in California through hearing stories from and learning more about the families of cattle country. Some of California's deadliest and most destructive fires have occurred within the last five years. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a cause for optimism. Climate change coupled with decades of forestry mismanagement or lack of management by the U.S. Forest Service have turned California's wild places into a tinderbox. Over half of California's 33 million acres of forest is managed by the federal government, which is mired in red tape and seemingly slow to move. In this season, we'll speak with California cattlemen as they have a unique lens to wildfires. Most often, they and their animals are on the front line. Now a little history, the Great Fire of 1910. August 20th, 1910. After a dry year, hurricane-force winds swept to the northwest and combined thousands of small fires into one massive fire. Several towns in Idaho and Montana were burnt to the ground. 87 people were killed, mostly were firefighters. And the newly formed U.S. Forest Service, then just five years old, was overmatched, lacking the manpower and equipment to fight the fire. Over three million acres burned. And that's an area roughly the size of Connecticut. Spoke for the fire could be seen as far away as New York State. Prior to the Great Fire, the Forest Service was facing cancellation due to opposition from mining and forestry interests. After the fire, support for the Forest Service was invigorated. In 1908, a policy was developed that the Forest Service was to extinguish every fire as soon as possible. A bit later, they adopted the 10 a.m. rule, which stipulated that all fires should be extinguished the morning that they were spotted. The Forest Service sought increased funding, established lookouts and watchtowers and fire roads, and benefited greatly from technology and equipment from the Second World War. This is to say that the Forest Service got really good at extinguishing fires. Fire is a natural occurrence in our wild spaces. In fact, there are tree species whose seeds only germinate after a fire in an attempt to limit competition and take advantage of the new fertile soil. The Forest Service, preventing all fire, unknowingly built up a massive fuel load in the national forest under their policy of total suppression. Where a fire 200 years ago would have stayed on the ground and clean out the underbrush, now fire has enough fuel to move quickly and reach the canopies of trees. This season of the podcast, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Normally, I visit ranches throughout the state interviewing ranchers for the first time. In this season, we'll visit thematical foci. We're obviously starting with fire. Dave Daly is a past CCA president, accomplished academic, and a rancher affected by the Northern Complex fire of a few years ago. In this episode, we speak with Dave about his experience with the fire, how wildland management is holding up, and his feelings on the outlook for the future. We're going to start off with an excerpt from Dave's writing entitled, I Cry for the Mountains and Legacy Lost. In the article, it's beautifully written. It was picked up by many publications, including the LA Times and the Independent in the UK. In preparing for this interview, I asked Dave if he was willing to read the article into a microphone. After all, these aren't pleasant memories, and as you'll hear. His response was, it's important to remember. I'm Ryan Donahue, and this is Stories from California Cattle Country. It's almost midnight. We've been pushing hard for 18 to 20 hours every day since the Bear Fire tore through our mountain cattle range on September 8th. There's so much swirling in my head, I can't sleep anyway. The fire destroyed our cattle range, our cattle, and even worse, our family legacy. Someone asked my daughter if I had lost our family home. She told them, no, that would be replaceable. This is not. I would gladly sleep in my truck for the rest of my life to have our mountains back. I'm enveloped by overwhelming sadness and grief and then anger. I'm angry at everyone and no one. 
Grieving for things lost will never be the same. I wake myself weeping almost soundlessly, and it is hard to stop. I cry for the forest, the trees, and streams, and the horrible deaths suffered by the wildlife on our cattle. The suffering was unimaginable. When you find groups of cows and their baby calves tumbled in a ravine trying to escape, burned almost beyond recognition, you try not to retch. You only pray death was swift. A fawn and small calf side by side as if hoping to protect one another. Worse, in searing memory, cows with their hooves, udders, and even legs burned off who had to be euthanized. A doe laying in the ashes with three fawns. Not all hers, I bet. And you are glad they can stand and move even with a limp, because you really cannot imagine any more death today. Euthanasia is not pleasant, but sometimes it's the only option. But you don't want more suffering. How many horrible choices have faced us in the past three days? We have taken to the cattle to the Plumas National Forest since before it was designated such. It is a steep and vast land of predominantly mixed conifers and a few stringer meadows on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains, straddling Butte and Plumas County. My great-great-grandfather started moving cattle to the high country sometime after he arrived in 1852 to the Oroville area looking for gold. The earliest family diary of driving cattle to our range in the mountains dates back to 1882. Poor Irish immigrants trying to scratch a living from the land. The range is between the South Fork and Middle Fork of the Feather River, the drainage that fills Lake Orville. It is 80-inch rainfall country from October to May with deep snow at the high end, and then it goes completely dry. Three major streams, rivers, and hundreds of creeks and springs punctuate the land. My friends from the arid west can't understand why it is hard together. Don't you just go to the water? Not that simple in this environment. It is difficult countries, in some ways more suited to sheep because of the browse, but politics and predators killed the sheep industry in the country years ago. But the cows love the range and do well. Cool days and nights, no flies, higher elevations avoiding the hot summers in the valley. A great place to summer cattle. They actually like to go as much as we do. For those of you who have never seen this land, this isn't riding a horse into a meadow or open ridge where you can see cattle. This is literally hunting through a vast forest of deep canyons, rivers, and creeks, and the high ridges in between. It is not an easy place to gather or even find cattle in the best conditions. There are six generations who love that land, and my new granddaughter, Junie, is the seventh. And I find myself overcome with emotion as I hear of the things she will never see, but only hear in stories told to her by granddad. We all love the mountains. They are part of us, and we are part of them all destroyed in one day. I am angry. We did a trip here a couple of years back with a bunch of politicians, policymakers and things, and, and did a, a drive up into the hills there. And there was this like dichotomy between, the, like you took us to a place where one side of the street or one side of the road was different than the other. One was federally managed and one was not. One was timber managed. I haven't been back there. How is it faring? And then can you explain the difference between those two sides. Right. When we took a tour with several state and some federal officials, I, I think the clear contrast between privately managed land and federal land was obvious. And I think it's more extreme now in that uh, the private land, the timber, the burnt timber was harvested and they've replanted millions of trees. Uh, the federal lands, they've done nothing at all. They talk about it, but basically it's big dying trees waiting to fall in the north wind and or any wind. And that's what's happening. So there's been little change. The contrast between the two were actually one had had a small fire on it a few years before and all the, the understory had been removed. And those trees lived. The big trees lived through the fire. 
on the opposite side of the road, there'd been no clearing of understory and it killed not only the understory, it killed all the big timber. So what we're seeing is lands that have just never been managed. In your experience there, as far as access goes, and then also the behavior of the fire goes, it's like we, in, in California, the most incredible fires have happened in the last five years. I see people who don't necessarily regard fire with the right amount of reverence and same with with water even in the ocean right can you elucidate any of that like how like how did the fire behave did you have access to getting your animals or was there something like did could you not get in there yeah i i think the fuel loads are so high at this point that what we would have considered normal fire behavior 50 to even 75 years ago doesn't exist any longer. Um, and I don't think people recognize that. So we're in this really tough place where we actually need fire as a tool, but people are rightly afraid of it because a few loads are so high. So it's made it very difficult to make any changes to the way we manage the landscape because um, when we should use fire, there's a variety of regulations that prevent it. Maybe it's a smoke regulation. Maybe it's, uh, it might have something to do with air quality. Maybe it's weather conditions. And then we're to a case where now we are completely out of control and we have no way to manage it. So no, we didn't have access when the fire was going. We figured out access and it was dangerous uh, because those fuel loads are to such a point now that behaviors not predictable. I probably know more about fire than I did three years ago. And I've worked with people and firefighters and actually lead agencies in terms of some of the things. And we were taking significant risk. We were taking it because of the cattle that were there and because of our family legacy. Would I do it again? Yes. Uh, was it smart? Probably not. Uh, but it was really important to us. And unfortunately, we saved some, but not as many as I'd like. So I think the public's in a tough spot because they're afraid of fire, but we need fire. And I'm not exactly sure how we resolve that, but we're going to have to reduce fuel loads one way or another. In the past years, since the Bear Fire, the Northern Complex Fire, has there been any progress? I think the discussions are better. I think I'm starting to hear people at the state level in particular on a variety of sides, understand how important it is for us to work with managing fuel. I hear more people who talk about livestock as a tool to reduce fuel loads, and, and that may be sheep and goats, it could be cattle. But all of a sudden, I think the narrative around fire has changed a bit uh, because of all the catastrophes. That I say is true more on the state lands and private lands. Federally, they can't figure it out. They want to do things, but it's such a huge bureaucracy and such a massive. If you talk about United States Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management, they are such big agencies. They can't figure out how to move forward. And even when they want to, they're frequently sued to stop those things. Yeah. And so the money goes to litigation rather than boots on the ground. I'm a little encouraged in, in California that I see a lot of these smaller prescribed fire groups and how do we save our community groups and we're going to use sheep as a tool. But it is becoming more common that, you know, the livestock can play a role and we're going to have to do something to manage fuel loads or we're going to lose more towns like Paradise or Berry Creek or all of the ones that have gone before. I just remember 
that we're talking with, you know, these policymakers and like the head of Cal Fire, I think, was there. Like it was like a big group. And that on one side, there's like these are the timber people. 20 years ago, would you ever assume that the timber people are the ones that are going to be like better managing than the federal government? Like to, to me, that stuck out like it seemed kind of out there. I probably assumed it more because I had watched it. Again, it's not the people who are employed by the forest. It's a forest service. It's a bureaucracy itself is so large they can't make change. But I guess I wasn't entirely surprised um, that the natural resource managers, private land managers are better equipped to make change than the federal government is. And I would say at the state level, there's more and more people who understand it. But again, we're facing a major budget deficit. So where do the resources come from? When I think of ranchers and those, you know, people are worried in and around a community close. And how do we change home hardening and how do we clear around our homes? That's great. But these fires, that wouldn't be enough. I mean, they're going to start in the wildlands or in the rangelands or where cattle are. We have to be, we can be almost a buffer for those communities, but people don't even think about that. They're thinking about next door to them. When one of these fires comes with 70 miles an hour wind, if you've got a fuel load, nothing you do for your town is going to save you. Nothing. And I'm talking about, you know, I, you can look at Rockland, Placerville, these little communities, but you go anywhere in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada to any of these towns, they are primed to be gone. I was at Yosemite and testified to a congressional hearing on forestry, Oh, last summer, I believe it was, with the Natural Resources Committee, Yosemite's primed to burn. It is absolutely a national treasure, world treasure. And there has been so little done on the outskirts of that, that if they get one of these, it will be tragic to lose that. And it could happen. I mean, I was talking to, well, I was actually just reading about the Sonoma complex fire that happened. It ran downhill which when I, I took forestry classes and stuff, it's like, oh, fires run uphill. Like, you know, obviously, because there was so much fuel that it went down. They move fast. There's a, we lost a lot of structures. And we will again. I mean, look at how we have fragmented the rangelands in California that were that buffer where now everybody has a ranchette. And, and I don't begrudge them that. I, I get why they want to. I would do that before living in an apartment in town. I understand. When you build off of a, a road with little access in 20 acres of Mansanita, you, you are going to lose your home. Right now, you probably can't even sell your home because you can't get insurance. No, there's no insurance. There's no insurance available. So this, I think what I've noticed is the problem that I guess we knew was coming and we've watched for years the public now is understanding and they're understanding because either what happened to their neighbor, to them or their insurance or any of those things. I mean, if you go to paradise that was burnt before, you know, the campfire, that was a beautiful place and they're trying to rebuild, but it's not the same place. It's just not. So I don't know how much you want to recount this, but like, can you just document or just kind of explain anything that you you saw, because I know you saw some crazy stuff. And, and is there anything like that you would want people to take away any like kind of imagery that people could see or understand just to how ferocious that fire was? Yeah, I don't know how graphic you want me to. No, be. I mean, just go. Yeah, go. Um, I think it shocked me. It shocked all of us. You know, I, I think I I've written that I now understand the difference between um Rescue and recovery. Well, basically why things are gone. They're dead. 
And you get to a point where you just cannot imagine how anything survived because it moved so quickly and so dramatically and destroyed so much that it, it literally took your breath away. You, you had no idea. It wasn't your breath away. Your gut hurt, your heart hurt, your mind hurt. Um, you were in a spot that was hard to actually, how do we just keep going? But you do because you have no choice. And I'm sure other people have had similar tragedies that they could relate to, but it's one that is so all consuming that it's hard to grasp. The most graphic one I can remember is we split up and I went one way with my youngest son, Rob and Kyle and Kate, my older two went another direction and they went into the Rock Creek drainage where they, I didn't expect to find that many cattle there, but they did. And it was still burning. It was still smoky. And they um, found a cow with her legs burnt off, but still alive in the water. And so Kyle euthanized her, put her down. And Kate's a veterinarian, so she has pretty good skills. But, you know, they're in shock. You know, their whole world was turned upside down. All their memories are gone. Kyle went looking for more in the smoke and the flames. And Kate saw a calf kick inside the cow because she was ready to have a calf. And so Kyle got back and with, she had none of her veterinary equipment with her, obviously. And with pocket knife, um, they did a C-section, pulled the calf out and it was still breathing, but didn't make it. That sticks with you always. That won't go away for those kids or for me, because they had to deal with that. And that's the level of the stuff you saw. You saw, you know, fawns dead in the middle of the road. You saw bear, fox, you name it, mountain lion, nothing could outrun it. You understand how quickly it moved. And, you know, people who are not prepared for it, it it's the fuel load, but it's the ferocious winds. And when you couple those two together, if you aren't prepared, it was going to burn anyway. There was nothing that was going to stop this. But the only place we found cattle alive were where there had been fires before or significant clearing. That's the only places anything lived because there was less fuel. So it burnt through quickly. They may have had a little damage. Uh, we're still dealing with it. You know, any animal that lived from that fire, uh, we tried to keep on the ranch. We tried not to sell them. But you're still seeing now that their udders were burnt. Their teats were permanently damaged. Their next calf doesn't perform very well because there's not much milk. Their hooves hurt. They still can't move. It's been three years. Um, and we probably should have culled them all, but we didn't. We went back this year. The f we had to skip an entire year, first time in 140 years. Um, and then the next year we took back, a, will call it a test group of 100 cows. Last year we, we went with... 300 plus. And, and this year, I think we'll go with full numbers. It's just a different landscape. It's everything about is different. I, people would say, oh, it ought to be great now. You ought to have a lot of feed. And it's the landscape is not the same and will never be the same. The cattle are doing, they're doing fine, but it's, you know, people always want to put their experience from their ecosystem into your experience. And that's natural. You know, if I was in a juniper sagebrush or, or in a sagebrush ecosystem or a different one, you know, sometimes fire is a really good tool. It can really make a difference and increase feed. In this case, it's you just have to. I, I don't like people making judgments about a location they don't understand without visiting. 
without seeing the scope of it. But especially in California. And that's the one thing I've learned is that everywhere I go is so, so different. Like I was down in Imperial Valley and they're like, we don't want rain. I'm like, you're in the desert. I'm like, we have water. You know, it's just like everywhere you go, there's different, there's different situations. This is such a, a varied landscape. And it's so funny. It's like in my intro, I was just thinking, I'm not going to include any of this, but like when I drove in, you know, I'm like, well, you, you know, you leave Sacramento and then you drive and there's like some land that's probably going to be developed at some point. And then you get into like row crops or orchards. Right. And then and then you turn on a street and there's chickens in the street and you're just like, OK, that's how California is built. And I think people who aren't from here, even agricultural people, they know it's a big ag state. But you just if you get off of I-5 or 99 or 101, there's so much of it. And it is there's so many unique ecosystems. If you go to the Midwest, it's corn and soybeans. Right. You know, or it's wheat, you know, pick it. And it goes for miles and it looks the same here. You can go 50 miles and. You know, we're going to be in deep snow if you went 50 miles up the road with no access and you go the other way, you're heading towards the ocean or the valley. And it's it's what I love about California. A lot of a lot of people are getting negative over California. I think California is one of the most unique places in the world. And I love the diversity of what you see. But it's also why you shouldn't make judgments about it. You know, if I talk to people from the North Coast, it's you know they're thinking that we should be way more aggressive with fire. Well, the North Coast has four times as much rain as we do, and they got a better chance to do that. If you get in some of this country, if you're as aggressive with fire, you're going to lose it and you're going to lose people. And that's people who we, we think alike, but our ecosystems make it very different. You don't have to go very far to find differences. Are you hopeful of these wildlands, this environment? Also, I mean, your business too. How does it look to you? I'm thinking about that. And I, I would say I have to be hopeful. You wouldn't do it. I mean, there's a lot of negativity in agriculture. People worry about the future and they worry about the next generation and they worry about the things that are going to change, but they're still doing it. It is hard, but I love what I do. And I I hope my kids, and so far they do, you know, they aren't kids anymore, but they love what I do. And it doesn't mean that it won't be challenging, but I think things have always been challenging. I mean, I really do. And I, I think it's easy for us to say, oh, this is the hardest. This, this is worse. Well, no, it's not. You know, I, I'm young enough to remember my grandparents and even my parents talking about the depression and the things that they faced. And, you know, it's it's so easy to say, oh, we got it so bad. And eh, it was this was a challenge. This was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. But I also think it makes you more resilient, more willing to take risk to take the next step, say we have to make it better. And you only do that by willing, be willing to invest in trying to make it better. I'm not quitting. Like most people, I probably vacillate between, oh, this is tough, but I've never even thought like, well, I want to get out. You know, I, I want to get out. I want to take the money and go do something else because the land's worth a lot. It's not even an option to me. And, you know, it's completely off my radar. So I would say I'm hopeful. I've got four grandkids now and probably more coming and you want them to have that opportunity because it's tough but i can't see myself they probably wouldn't let me live in a city right <laughs> you know i can't see myself captured i still have a bit i still have a bit of wildness that i need to be out and i want my kids that they may choose not to or the grandkids and that should be their choice 
but I'm not going to make that choice and say, oh, I'm thrown in the towel. There's an easier way to make a living. I want to thank you for letting me uh, pop in here and bother you. We should be able to talk again soon. Very well. As always, feedback is much appreciated. You can email me directly at ryan at calcattle.org. In this season, we're going to address subjects with five or six episodes each. I think we have it pretty well mapped out, but if there's a subject matter that would interest you, I'd love to hear it. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.